Welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. I hope you have your Bibles with you today. We're going to dive straight into the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter. And this last week, the Lord's been drawing my attention to this chapter. And I feel like there's some things to see for this moment. You may have these times in your life where you've gone through parts of Scripture and you've even memorized them. And then, for whatever reason, God draws your attention back to those parts of Scripture and you think, well, what's the point? I've already learned that. But the Word is alive, and uh, the living Word and the written Word, they, they kind of work in tandem together. And God speaks so deeply through the Scriptures, if you're willing to let the Holy Spirit speak to you and draw you back to places that you've been before. And He can unveil things to you that you never saw. And, uh, and I feel like that's kind of what's happening with me in John chapter 5. I'm seeing things that are just so brilliant and beautiful and really pertinent, I think, for for me and all of us here in the body of Christ right now. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to get them out and go to John chapter 5. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture today. Then I want to talk to you a little bit about it. Um, Before we get into this today, uh, let me just say a word of prayer over you. Father, I'm just so grateful every time we get a chance to do this and, and to sit down and to unveil the truth that's found in the, the the scriptures. And Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, as we look at the words on the page, may they come alive to us. May they illuminate what you want us to see in this moment. And collectively, Lord, as, as the body of Christ, may we all find ourselves in a place of, of greater revelation because of what we read today. And Lord, I pray that your word would come alive to us like never before. And Lord, that you would be revealed in these moments, that your Holy Spirit would fill us fresh, give us a, a, a revelation of, of what is available to us in you. Give us a revelation of your goodness today. And Lord, if there's any discouraged or any sick among us, Father, may today be a day that they find healing and grace and hope. Author and the finisher of our faith. And we trust in you. We trust in you with our lives And we thank you for giving us life and life abundantly. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In John chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, we read this. After all these things, and the things he's talking about, by the way, are a lot of dramatic healings that have happened in the chapters leading up until this moment. After all these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, or paralyzed. Now a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there, and knowing that he had already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It's a Sabbath, and not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said it to you, Pick it up and walk? The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. 
And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and informed the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and he will come out, and those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, now we're going to stop just there. We're going to go back up to, we're not going to go all the way back up to verse uh, 1. We're actually going to go and drop down to the part of the story where Jesus speaks about himself and his father. And we're going to go in verse 17 and start there today. I do want to just say a couple of things about the story of the Pool of Bethesda. There's a lot of teaching I could do on this, and that's a rabbit hole we could go down uh, pretty deep. But uh, I just want to say, isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes to this man, the first question he asks him is, do you want to be well? And the guy doesn't respond with a yes or a no. He just responds to Jesus with a complaint about everybody else gets to the pool before I do. And Jesus doesn't lay hands on him. We don't see that. Jesus doesn't um, say, in my name, be healed. He doesn't say that. Jesus, look, Jesus looks at him and says, roll up your mat or pick up your pallet and go. Walk. And what Jesus seems to acknowledge here in this moment 
is that all that's required for this man to walk in healing is to obey his voice. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the man was actually sick or he just was sitting there trying to get some sympathy and gain some alms or what was going on. But I believe the guy actually was sick because when he goes with his pallet and the Jews begin to ask him, religious leaders begin to ask him, what is the what is the reason that you're walking on the Sabbath? The man acknowledges, hey, listen, I got healed by this guy. He told me to pick up my pallet and go. Like It's as if he gave me permission to be healed. And so I definitely believe he was ill, been ill for a long time, and somehow believed in this superstitious idea that all you had to do is be the first one into the waters when the angel troubled the waters and you could you could get well. Jesus goes to this guy at the pool and just asks him the question, do you want to be well? You know, it's interesting because a lot of times we're defined by our darkness. We're defined by our dilemmas. We're defined by our scars. And those things become such a part of our identity, we're not 100% sure what we would do without them. They even become a part of our name sometimes. You think of blind Bartimaeus. Well, who, who was blind Bartimaeus once he got his eyes back? Uh, who was blind Bartimaeus once he could see anymore? He, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't blind. And so therefore he had to have a name change, an identity shift. And some people's identity is so wrapped up in their sickness that it would take a complete identity shift for them to walk in newness of life. Well, in this case, this guy gets Jesus in trouble because he reveals that what Jesus did, he did on the Sabbath. And isn't it interesting that the religious and political leaders of the day, in Jesus' day, always were looking at the wrong thing. The religious leaders weren't interested in the fact that this guy got healed. They were bothered that he got healed on the Sabbath. That was the problem. And uh, today, though, I want to jump down to verse 17 of chapter 5, John chapter 5. And I want to begin there, okay, because that's the interesting part to me uh, that I feel like the Lord's drawing my attention to is what happens following this story, right? In verse 17, we see Jesus saying something about his father. Now, leading up to chapter 5, we see Jesus healing people dramatically and illegally. And what in the world could be illegal about healing people? Well, it was this Sabbath thing. And in verse 17, Jesus says that his father has been working. Essentially, dad's been working nonstop, is what he's saying. He hasn't stopped working. And that Jesus, what he sees, they see Jesus doing is just a reflection of what he sees the father doing. So Jesus has just been flowing with what the father is already doing. Now, if you're an Orthodox Jew and you're listening to Jesus, you know that God created the world six days and ceased from his work on the seventh day and then by law instituted the Sabbath for man. And now here comes this miracle worker from Nazareth who claims God is his father. And not only that, but he breaks the law and he makes no apologies about it. The religious law, the law that God gave them. And not only that, but he claims even God is working on the Sabbath too. Jesus defined terms differently than we do. Religion taught that the Sabbath was a holy day where you ceased from all of your work. Jesus taught that the Sabbath was a holy life by grace 
where you cease from your works to try to make yourself righteous or impress God. Religion taught that the temple was a holy building in Jerusalem built by their forefathers where people offered lambs as a sacrifice for sin, making us temporarily right with God. Jesus taught that the temple was a holy people, a body where the Lamb of God would dwell, live there by his spirit, making that temple, being us, the very righteousness of God in Christ. Religion taught that water was necessary for washing every time you needed cleansing, and that ritual needed to be repeated over and over again because it could only cleanse you for a time. Jesus taught that he himself was the water of life, and one taste, one taste to see that he is good, one drink would leave you satisfied eternally and permanently purified because of the properties of this water transcended in the spirit anything that physical water could do to our bodies. Religion saw natural birth. Jesus taught new birth. Religion taught division between people. Jesus prayed that we would be one. When you think of things like light, uh, you know, just something as simple as light that we're all familiar with, the words maybe fluorescent light or LED light may come to mind. But Jesus said of himself that he is the light of the world. Attributing that term to himself or Heavenly Father, because if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, well, suddenly it expands the term light beyond the realm of our natural understanding of bulbs and tubes and lamps, right? So when Jesus says then that you are the light of the world. He wasn't talking about measuring that term by our limited perspective of a functional fixture or a piece of furniture. He was linking your identity, supernatural identity, to his supernatural identity. There's so many common things we interact with that are divine hints to the very nature of God. Things that Christ Uh, had attributed to him, like door, the way, water, bread, the shepherd, the good shepherd, the well, a spring, so many more. Even today, when you hear a term and just automatically assume its meaning from your uh, limited understanding and education, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the way the Father sees and knows the words that we use. In verse 18 now, John here gives the reason for why this statement from verse 17 was such an issue. Jesus' violation of orthodoxy was not going to go unchallenged here. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, he said, I testify to the Jews, they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. The motive for their zeal was a righteous defense of the concepts of God that had been passed down to them through more than 1,200 years of the traditions of their forefathers. They weren't just fighting for themselves when it came to these traditions. In their mind, history was on their side. And they had the weight of 
all of this tradition behind them to fight even against Jesus Christ. But they didn't realize, they didn't know, probably didn't even care that he was the Son of God. Verse 19 that starts to reveal some amazing things to us here. You know, if the concepts of God that the Jews held were accurate, then they would have understood what the prophets were saying when they spoke and wrote of the coming of the Messiah. They would have recognized Jesus by the Spirit, but they could only see by the flesh and regard God by their limited perspective of the letter. Paul, he makes this differentiation between the carnal mind and the spiritual mind when he writes, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. See, the apostle Paul knew a little bit about being a keeper of the law, but the new covenant, it made the law null and void. And Paul was now aware of the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And he wrote about that earlier in Romans chapter 8. And that law of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. So the current keepers of the law were working zealously to enforce essentially what was a worthless and overturned old covenant system, an old covenant law. Now, he says here, their enforcement of the old was literal hostility toward God. You see this here in the verse I just read in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, where he says, The mind that set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. He's not talking about the law of Moses. Paul is living by a new covenant. I mean, this is the thing that's going to get him killed, is that he's pulling people out of an old covenant system by calling the old covenant law uh, a ministry of, of death and condemnation. So when he's talking about that the mindset on the flesh can't even subject itself to the law of God, he's speaking here of a new covenant system. And he says it's not even able to do so. So the current keepers of the law were working so zealously here to enforce a worthless and overturned law that their enforcement of it was literal hostility toward God and toward the new covenant. Now, Jesus here, he's not acting by some rebellious or independent spirit as the Jews believe. And his eyes are so fixed in a focused gaze on the Father. And his very being is moving in harmonious union with the ways of the Father, that he is revealing in flesh the very heartbeat of the Spirit of God. Christ in the flesh was not limiting the revelation of the Father to what we can understand or lowering him to something that we can comprehend. Now, Jesus was demonstrating for us the kind of connection with God that's possible and available for you and me right now. Now, I want you to think about this. What kind of a connection and relationship do you have with God? Now, this is the kind of depth of relationship that we can have with God, where we can perceive his movements and align our movements with his. 
And this is what it means back in the, I remember in the 90s, they came out with a series called Experiencing God. And this was a seemingly new revelation. And for many it was, but it was really a refreshing revelation of something that had been available to us all along. And that is that God is real, he's alive, and he's active in the world. Don't try to come up with things to do to impress a, a sedentary God who's just passively sitting by waiting for somebody to come up with a good idea. Find out what he's doing and align with that. Get on board because the gospel is moving. It's happening. There's stuff going on all around you. Get on board with what God is doing. I think of, and I think I mentioned this last week, I think of a move of God that's happening in Charlotte, North Carolina right now at a church called The Gate. It's the beginning of an awakening, really. It's an awakening that's been prophesied over this place for a while, and an awakening really that's been prophesied over our nation for many, many years. And you know, when you hear about moves of God, what do you do? Hey, listen, if you can't get there in person, try to tune in, jump online, watch, see what, what's happening. Because the words and the declarations and the messages that come out when moves of God begin to happen, they bring us back to a supernatural impartation of a revelation of, in this case, I believe, the holiness of the Father's love. And this is what has been spoken over this move of God. That if the last move of God unveiled the Father's heart to us, and that is his heart is for us and not against us, his goodness is for us and not against us, then this movement is a movement of the holiness of the Father's love. There's so many definitions of love these days that when we get a fresh definition of the Father's love, it's like, are we seeing something new we've never seen before? Oh, listen, love has been attached to just about everything. I mean, you love your coffee, your dog, your your wife, your kids, you know, all those different things. And that it all applies. But, you know, in Greek, there were four words for love. In, in English, we essentially have one. And we apply it to pretty much everything. We say it at the end of a phone call or, you know, walking away from somebody, say, love you. And it can be a heartfelt sentiment. That's true. But love is the very identity of the divine nature of God. God is holy. And there's something that I think that God is trying to impart to us these days, and that is a, a redefinition of the word love to include something holy about it. It's not something you just flippantly say, you know, at the end of a random conversation. This is something where we are reminding each other about the holiness of our God and the very holiness of the identity that we carry for made in his image and likeness. And so there's something about declaring a love for somebody that has an importation of holiness to it. And, and there's something there that's, that, that has to be seen, has to be grasped. God is eternally holy. And in that place of holiness, you and I live and move and have our being. And may have never thought of yourself as holy, but uh, you, you are by the very nature of God who has imparted his image to you. But it's the Holy Spirit that teaches you to bridge the gap between the image and likeness so that you, in the image of God, can put the likeness of God on display. It's when we don't put the likeness of the image on display that humanity becomes very confused. It's when we don't put the likeness of the image on display that we operate independently of that image to the point where we warp that image and all people see is us. When all people see is you, then you're exalting the creature above the creator. When all people see is you, then it's selfish instead of selfless. And the very nature of the Godhead, 
was that one points to the other. Oh, more on that a little bit later. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let's go to verse 20. John chapter 5 and verse 20. Listen, this right here, this isn't some robotic reflection here. This is, call it a dance, if you will, a place where love and union are revealed. You know, you think of a horse and a rider. They seem to function as a single entity or a ship with billowed sails is surrounded by the wind that moves it across the waters. But listen, those are limited illustrations, and they only show the working of two completely different entities together. But as I said earlier, you're made in the very image of God. And as we fix our spiritual eyes or meditations of our heart on Jesus, the likeness of that image is revealed and seen by those around us. Now, the Father and the Son, it says here, have no secrets from one another, no hidden agendas. There's a transparent vulnerability in this union between Father, Spirit, and Son. And so there's no fear that's not transcended in love. Just as the Father was revealing to the Son everything that was on his heart, so the Father desires to commune with us, illuminating the mysteries of the eternal Christic covenant to us, the new covenant. The Trinity, embodied within the Godhead, maintains an equilibrium of sorts. It's an equilibrium of relationship by the love evidenced in the attention drawn to one by the other. The Father gives the Spirit and the Son. The Son always exalts the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit always reveals the Son and the Father. Our exalted giving and revealing God is an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love. And as you and I behold the triunity of the great I Am, it's as if we are stripped of our selfish heart and our value for others increases. And one of the most childlike qualities of God is evidenced here in that he who knows all things seems to take delight in actually surprising himself by doing new things. Isaiah 48 verses 6 and 7 bears this out, saying, God is doing new things created now and not long ago, and in doing this, he even retains his right to stay a step ahead of even the prophets. What a delight that God likes surprising his children not only that, but even surprising himself. Verse 21 essentially tells us the resurrection is the delight of the Father and the Son. Think about that. Resurrection is not resuscitation here. Ever-increasing glory is the trajectory of the kingdom of God. You and I live a progressive, unfolding, changing process where old things pass away and all things become new in time. What a delight to be witness to the process of becoming who we've always been in the eyes and heart of our Heavenly Father who knew us before we ever met ourselves. In fact, we may have not even met ourselves yet, for until Christ is fully revealed in you, then you're not yet fully known. Now, we're going to stop here and pick up next week. I think we'll pick up next week in verse 22. Verse 22 speaks of judgment. Judgment is power. There's no greater power than God. So then what we see in verse 22 is that the decision not to judge is a greater demonstration of power than the exercise of judgment itself. When Jesus says here the Father judges no one, he's revealing an insight that's disappointing to religion. For so many people want God to come and fix what still seems to be broken. 
In other words, they can't wait for the Jesus to come because they're disappointed with the Jesus that came. They don't realize that when he said, it is finished, that he wasn't lying, that he was serious, that something happened on the cross, and it did more than you and I can imagine. And I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to say that the finished work of the cross provided eternal life for you and I. It provided healing and grace and forgiveness and wholeness and the ability for us to walk in unhindered communion with God where there's nothing between you and the Lord, no distance, no separation between you and him. Have you received Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers so freely? If today you're saying, I want to, then pray this with me and say, Jesus, I receive your grace. I I know that I can't live this life on my own and I turn from my sin now and I ask you to forgive me and give me that grace that you so freely give that Bill's talking about right here. I receive it by faith and now fill me with your Holy Spirit. I thank you for saving and loving me and filling me with your very spirit and your presence. Teach me how to recognize your activity in the world and to align with you. Teach me how to hear your voice and move with you. Fill my heart with love. Take out the selfish heart of stone and replace it with a heart of love. Thank you, Jesus, for saving and loving me. And listen, if you prayed this with me today, would you write to me? Go to VanderbushMinistries.com. Go to the contact form on the page or or do this. Go to BillVanderbush.com and go to the contact form. And if you'd like to write old-fashioned way, go to Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Hey, this is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Thank you so much for listening. Stay grounded in the Word of God and rooted in the person of Christ Himself and communing with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.